0: If you want to grab your Bible or get your Bible app ready, we're going to be studying the book of Exodus together, and we'll be looking at the rest of chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I'll read it for us in just a minute. Uh, if you're new with us, if you're tuning in from some other place, we want to welcome you wherever you are. Um, uh, we've been studying the book of Exodus for some time together, and we're in the part of Exodus where God brings the plagues upon the land of Egypt. Now, obviously, in in hindsight, we had no plan uh, that our land would be squarely in what some would consider a plague ourselves of some kind. But here's what I can say with great certainty and biblical authority on that issue. All of God's promises remain certain and true. The same God that led the people uh, during this time later into the wilderness and out, into and out of captivity multiple times, um, has most certainly not lost his grip on those he calls his own. We know this because the ultimate ransom to be paid for the lives of God's children trapped in Egypt, looking forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, remains as certain and true for us now who live in a time where we look back at the celebrated and finished redemptive work of Christ. What that means is, as we approach a text like ours today, we don't do it in fear, using it as some sort of doomsday playlist, um, no matter what our circumstances may be and how bad this situation in this season may be. Instead, we see it as what it truly is, a manifesto of God's faithfulness, To keep his promises. To those outside of Christ, certainly uh, it should bring fear and panic that all God's promises are certain and true. Because there are promises of judgment and condemnation on those who are outside of Christ. But for those who rest in Christ and his completed work, we should find peace even in our greatest trials and storms. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Pray with me. God, this morning I pray that you would guide us by your word and spirit. That in your light we might see light. In your truth we may find freedom. And in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It was customary for the people of God to stand for the reading of God's word in reverence and in honor. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, no matter where you are, no matter what you're wearing, uh, that you do the same and stand with me as I read our text this morning. Again, it's Exodus 9, verses 13 through 35. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, by this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been been in the Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore, sin, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. On man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt, then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rained down, rained down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt. "...since it became a nation. The hell struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hell struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, "'This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail.' I will let you go, and, I, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to them, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax of the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer." were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The grass withers, And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So thus far we've looked at the first six plagues that were brought to Egypt by the mouths of Moses and Aaron. But more specifically through their staffs, uh, are they able to do these wondrous signs? and, and, um, And we've seen that as quickly as they're brought to Egypt and upon their people, they can be called away. Now, the significance of God using a few walking sticks to remind Pharaoh and everyone who is watching this all play out, that the real hand that's behind all of this is not Moses and Aaron. It's the one true God of Israel. As we've learned, Egypt had an idol problem. They they didn't have a problem worshiping. They worshiped everything. They worshiped The wrong things though, we saw an example of this a few weeks ago when we were looking at the first part of chapter 8, how the people of Egypt wanted to give thanks for the miracle of childbirth, but instead of their raising their eyes to heaven, to the author and creator of all life, instead they gave all the credit to frogs of the Nile who represented their gods of fertility and honored them by refusing to lay a hand on them. So in no, in no small measure of dramatic irony, God gives them more of their idol than they can literally stand. Eventually, they're begging God to take away their gods. Yet they remained unwilling to turn their hearts towards the one true God. Gage mentioned last week how it... Uh, might be easy for us to look at Pharaoh and his people after all of this and, and, and just say something like, throw the towel in already. I, I mean, haven't you had enough? And so even as we start this text that, we, that I just read, the first part of this text, it sounds so familiar. Moses comes before Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh probably by now could just stop him and say, let me guess, let your people go and worship God in the wilderness. You know, this Yahweh that you talk about. But what comes after that differs from the previous encounters between Moses and Pharaoh. In verse 15, Moses says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, I brought six plagues to Egypt, but I only needed one. Up until now, each plague has been costly. Lives have been inconvenienced and altered, but ultimately spared. Each time God has backed off as Pharaoh and his people said whatever God wanted them to say. But as we've seen, what they're saying are empty promises made in some small measure of desperation to get relief or rescue from their circumstances. It could could lead some to studying these passages to perha- perhaps ask the question about God's resolve. I mean, after reading the first six plagues, by this time I bet we could probably shut our Bibles and guess what happens next in this part of the story. You could probably guess that Moses is going to say, let my people go, Pharaoh's going to say, no way, Mose." I just made that up. I hope you're laughing. Um, Moses is going to make a promise that God is about to do something that's painfully inconvenient and costly to the people, which by now we see sort of the people bracing for impact, kind of looking and, and, and just saying, oh, I don't know what's coming up next. This is probably a terrible comparison. But every time I hear that the governor or the president is about to make a statement, I'm bracing myself at what's going to be taken away next. Uh, mothers bracing them, are you going to be a homeschool mom for the rest of the year or a homeschool dad? Um, are, are, are we going to have to continue to deal uh, with lacks, lack of things in the grocery stores? I mean, March has already been maddening, but not in the way that you or I expected March madness to happen. Uh, be- we've gotten a couple of things. We got Frozen too early. We got the new Star Wars a little earlier than expected, but we lost toilet paper you and i know things these things that we're talking about are, are 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 merely inconveniences and like our text they aren't really what's at stake in all of this so as the people of egypt have settled into this battle this is really a battle between their gods and the one true god of israel the god of the hebrews and and they probably at some point acknowledge hey we've had to give ground but we have not broken yet So then comes verse 16, and and I want us to, this verse is key to our understanding, not only of what God is about to do here, but what he's been doing throughout this whole match between their gods and, and the one true God, and even greater still, what he's been doing in time and space leading up to this point. Look at verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed In all the earth. Between verse 15 and 16, God is saying that things aren't as bad as they could have been. And I'm about to do something now that has been a long time in the making, and that the whole world is never going to forget. It's almost as if God is saying here in verse 15 and 16, I have purposely drawn this fight out. Why? To show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, you and I know that anytime God speaks, He doesn't merely speak in the present, He speaks in light of all eternity. He doesn't make rash decisions like you or I do. Everything He does is calculated and measured, taking into consideration the full length and breadth of all of time itself. We used the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. I I love the wording. Uh, Listen to our forefathers and how they wrote about, as they poured over the scriptures concerning this part of God's character. This is question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What that tells us is that not only does God know what he's doing here, he planned the whole thing. Not just Egypt's demise, but their rise to power in the first place. All the worldly strength and authority of Egypt wasn't by a byproduct of their superior wisdom or intellect. It was a gift. And this gift had a purpose. You see, everyone looked at Egypt as the greatest superior thing going on at the time. Most powerful, superior civilization. Something that would understandably cause a watching world to ask, what do they do? Who do they credit for all of this? Unfortunately, like we've said, they had an idol problem. They loved, praised, even sacrificed to their higher powers. Just not the right, one true higher power. Look at verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Now, up until now, we've seen in the plagues this clear division between Israelite and Egyptian. Look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. He went from having two different types of people that he's talking about to three. You had God's enemies, you had God-fearers, and you had God-followers. But here we see a warning go out to the Egyptians, and we see the Egyptians heed the warning, and they begin to get everything living that's outside, inside. For the first time, we see Pharaoh's officials, because they've most likely seen enough to know that God is capable of doing what he says. This is the first time we see Egypt sort of brace as a, com- as a uh, country for the incoming plague. You and I have gotten a bit of that this week. We can probably better imagine the panic and fear of those running around Egypt trying to get everything they need and get all that they have inside of a shelter, stockpiling for the coming storm. While other, others who, who don't believe God and don't take Him at His word, they leave their things in the field. They go and celebrate and do, go about their business as though nothing were changing. And then as you go on in verse 25, these, we see that these storms are brutal. Killer hail, strong winds, lightning, potential tornadic activity, and for the first time, loss of life. The hail struck down, verse 25, everything that was in the field and in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Look at Pharaoh's response in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall, uh, you shall stay here no longer. Now I want to point out something quickly that I think is pretty cool. Um, Look at what Moses does after Pharaoh's confession. Verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. He waits to stop the storms till after he takes a stroll down Broadway through the middle of the city during a storm that is killing everything living outside. If there was any thought going on in Israel or in Egypt that somehow these storms were just scattered showers and that somehow through uh, the miracles of science and climatology, Goshen were being spared and Egypt were under duress, Moses squashes this theory with this move as he puts himself... At the mercy of the author of the storm. I want to point out two things really quickly. First, I want us to pay close attention to the three types of people and the three types of responses we see in our plague and our text. We have those who could care less and they make the wrong decision to do nothing. We have those that heed the warnings, but do so out of fear and anxiety because they're uncertain of the outcome. And finally, we see what we see in Moses, who puts himself at the mercy of the storm bringer because he knows that this storm isn't for him. Now, please don't misinterpret this. This is in no way a prescription of how to act uh, during this season as a Christian, this isn't calling us to throw caution into the wind and ignore the wisdom that we're being given by others, uh, medical professionals or whatnot. Um, but the byproduct of trusting God in the peace and confidence it brings is worthy of note in comparison to these other responses that we see from Egypt. The second observation might be of the officials who heed the warnings, and even Pharaoh as he confesses his sin. The question may be, is, is the needle finally moving in Egypt? Is God not only showing up their gods, but winning over their hearts? If you read Ezekiel 29 and other places, then you know oftentimes God brings us to a place of true humility and need before we truly acknowledge our need for a Savior. There's no clear evidence to believe that that's what's taking place here. Look at the statement after the storms in verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. This text reminds us that there exists a faith that moves us to acknowledge God's power and even accept His works in parts of our life, to save our livestock and our servants, our livelihood, but it's not a saving faith. You may ask, well, how do you know the difference? Saving faith always, always drives us to worship and obey God. Always. It isn't the absence of sin or fear or panic, but the presence of God's peace and wisdom that somehow works in the midst of that, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our panic. There's an imitation version of Christianity floating around, and much like COVID 19, it is deadly if not acknowledged and dealt with. The only true way to know which of these faiths that you have is open heart surgery. It's why King David himself invites the Lord to do heart surgery on him in Psalm 139. Listen as I read it for us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The imitation version of Christianity says, I obey to receive God's blessing. I obey to save my livestock. I obey to save my servants. I obey to keep my bank account full. I obey to keep my family safe and healthy. The real Christianity says, it's because I've already received God's blessing that I obey. For so many of us who grew up in and around the church, it's so easy to mistake one for the other. Honestly, all of us, have been forced to retreat in some ways from the normal. So much of what was normal and routine for us, which includes going to church every Sunday. My prayer has been that through this season, as God has pulled us away from our routines, from our four walls, bricks and mortar church, routine, Sunday school, Sunday morning, not that any of those things are bad, But as he's pulled us away from all those things, my prayer is that God would use this season to refine and grow his people. To break us of our imitation Christianity that takes place mostly on Sundays and in church buildings. Meaning those of us who have been working tirelessly at the church would find ourselves relieved of the burden of having to go every week and dress up and pretend. We would find the season to be enlightening and, and helpful as the burden of pretending and performing all these years is lifted off our shoulders and we get a collective breath. But that ultimately, having that taken away would lead us to a real and saving faith that does more than acknowledge God and His gift and yet spend the rest of our life trying to be good enough to earn it. Truly grasping hold of this gift of unmerited grace and mercy that we've received in the person and work of Jesus Christ will never, ever leave us short of gratitude and worship for the one who has gifted it to us. That is the true test. Not to earn it, but only because of God's grace, we have it already. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then perhaps you feel a bit like me, and the comfort and ease of church and its routine have been taken from you. But trust me when I say this, and our brothers around the world who've never had four walls, and who've never been able to meet openly and publicly, who've been doing this and other things for years, they would affirm that this is a gift of God's grace for you and me. To remember what being the church is truly all about. That we would pursue knowing and serving God, our neighbor and one another, no matter what our circumstances may be. Just like God raised up Pharaoh in Egypt to such power and might and prominence so that he could demonstrate how much greater his power and authority was. God demonstrates his love for us by lifting up his own son to die a traitor's death for you and me. Listen to Colossians 1, 21 through 23 as we close. that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What does someone convince that God holds and moves all things for his glory and our good live like? I want to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism and close with that. The next question after 27, 28 says this, What does it profit us to know that God created and by His providence upholds all things. Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will, They cannot so much as move. So we close, just a question. Is that the sort of confidence you have in God? Such that in seasons like we're in right now, we don't crumble. We thrive. We flourish. No matter what our circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, your word has gone forth. We acknowledge this morning that in all the things that we have come to know and even all the things that we have to connect with you, we don't need cable. We don't need internet or TV. You can go. Your spirit can go where we cannot. Your word has gone forth. May it continue to take root in our lives. May it continue showing us our dependencies, and the ways in which we've trusted in other things. And Father, may it move us beyond just acknowledgement, even confession, may it move us to action. Would we be children of action and, and and therefore be your church, the bride in which you came and died and bled for, to present us faultless before your throne with great joy, Father, and it's all these things we look to Christ who is for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And only in Him do we find the strength and the measure in which to stand and walk and even run. So, Father, it's in His name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.